And, and it's really been a privilege of mine um, over this particular summer. I don't know if 2020 played into it or what the deal is, but it seems like people are traveling, the people in our church at least, more than ever. Like I'm, I'm enjoying watching Facebook of people who are going out west and up north and to the mountains and other people going to Yellowstone and the Tetons. Uh, Pastor Ken and Madonna just got home last night from Yellowstone and the Tetons. And, and I love it because you get all the pictures and uh, many of those things I've been able to experience myself. And so I love it when other people get to experience that because it was so awesome for me and I love to share that. And, uh, and thinking about the song you just heard, America the Beautiful, I mean, uh, as one who has traveled uh, around the world, been on five of the seven continents, and only one of the others do you ever want to be on, it's, it's, it's Australia, nobody wants to go to Antarctica, <laughs> especially as Florida people. Um, but being five of seven continents, I've been around the world, I've seen a lot of things, but America from top to bottom is the most gorgeous country on the planet. Literally from sea to shining sea. You know, you could talk about the Smoky Mountains. You could talk about the deserts in Arizona, the Grand Canyon. Uh, you could talk about the Rocky Mountains. You could talk about places like Bar Harbor, Maine that I personally love, and Yellowstone and Jackson Hole and the Grand Teton areas and, and all the forests and all the valleys. And you could talk about all these things because America is beautiful, right? Uh, there was a lady in 1893 that climbed to the very tops of Peaks Pike. It's 14,000 feet above sea level. She took a wagon first, and when the wagon couldn't go any further, she took a mule. Her name was Catherine Lee Bates, and she climbed all the way to the top of it. And when she got to the top of it, she was exhausted, as you can imagine. Yet the scenery made her come alive. She looked around. That's a picture of Pikes Peak, but she looked around as she was there, and she wrote this in her journal. She said, all the wonders of America seem to be on display. And it was there that she has an epiphany. Uh, you could call it a God moment, whatever you want to call it, but without actually writing it down, she begins to pin words in her own head, writing a few of them down, but mostly coming in her own head. And it's there that as she's looking out in this very next slide, that she writes what became, oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for Purple Mountain's majesty above the fruited plain. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crowned thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. There's four stanzas in what was the poem that eventually became the great song that nobody does better than Ray Charles. Can I get an amen? And if you don't agree, I don't like you. <laughs> Why did God shed his grace on thee? And are we walking away from that very grace that God shed it on? I, I want to give you one phrase, and then I'm going to unpack it. I'm going to butcher everybody who's a type A and looking forward to the notes and all that kind of stuff. But just stay with me. As I was contemplating this week and prayerfully looking at what God wanted to say to us, I, I wrote this down. America is beautiful because she was seated in revival, saturated in prayer, cultivated in Christian values, and birthed through the blood of patriots. Let's unpack that for just a second. Things that you may or may not have ever heard before. Number one, America was seated in revival. The fourth stanza of America the Beautiful says, Oh, beautiful for patriots dream that sees beyond the years. Thine alabaster cities gleam, undimmed by human ears. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. 
Oh, beautiful for Patriot's dream. What was that dream and where did that dream come from? Let me take you back many, many years in the part of the revolution that many people don't talk about. And that is that the Great Awakening literally changed the colonies forever and laid the foundation and the groundwork for the American Revolution itself. You probably never hear about this in your history class, but let me begin to understand or unpack what's going on here. Um, there's a lie that is um, not necessarily said, but it's just assumed, especially by Christians a lot, that says there was at some point where everybody was Christians, and America's been in a slow decline for years and years and years, and, you know, and that's just what's happened. That's not true whatsoever. In fact, if you look through world history and American history, what you find is that there are waves of God moving. And so there are moments where a lot of people are believers or Christians or followers of Christ. And those waves come down and then a revival happens and it comes back up. Then it comes down and then a revival happens and it comes back up and it comes down. It's not one continuous. It's kind of like people get this impression that, you know, in some particular year, let's just say 400 AD, 580, I don't know, just making that up. In 580, everybody was believers. And since then, it's just this slow, steady decline. That's not actually the way it works. God moves through revivals, and as Christianity declines, God begins to move. And in the early days of the colonies, in the early 1700s, religion was on a steady decline before the Great Awakening. But the Great Awakening changed everything. People like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield preached to tens of thousands at a time when you did not have microphones and you did not have auditoriums that could hold that many. In fact, this bench right here, I had them bring it back out for us. This is what we at Arise refer to as our Great Awakening bench. This bench is from a church in New London, Connecticut from the early 1700s where some of the great awakening preachers like Jonathan Edwards actually preached in the church and people sat on this bench during the Great Awakening. George Whitfield preached in the town, but it was his normal uh, way of preaching. He wasn't in the churches, he was in the fields. And so people came back in and sat on these benches during the Great Awakening. People like David Bernard, the man who's considered the apostle to the Indians. David Bernard preached in this church. And literally the Great Awakening happened, at least in part, on this very bench that we have right here. And it becomes a reminder to you and I that no matter how dark America gets, God has an awakening. It is never too dark for God to show up. And this great awakening started changing everything. And the newer denominations like the Methodists and Baptists at the time grew rapidly. And uh, establishments came out of it for, high <coughs> Excuse me. for higher education. Princeton, Rutgers, anybody heard of those? Brown, Dartmouth were all formed out of this radical great awakening where everybody's coming to Christ at one time, or so many at least are coming to Christ at one time. George Whitfield's celebrity status cannot be overstated during this time period. He would go from town to town and he would preach in a way that was different than anybody had experienced before. The typical preachers talked in high and lofty language. George Whitfield spoke in the language of the people and he had a dramatic background and so he told stories probably much more like we do today, but very different than what they were experiencing. And so he told stories in a way that made them feel like they were part of the story. And, and he would preach to, to tens of thousands upwards. At one, part in Hyde, at one point in Hyde Park, they say he preached to 50,000 people. And people from all around would come to see him. And he didn't preach in the, in the churches like was expected at the time period. He would go to the countrysides and he would be again, uh, uh, lecturing and put up a podium. And, and people would come all over and sit in the hot air to hear him preach. 
thousands upon thousands. He was so influential that before him, it's said by one historian, there was no unifying intercolonial person or event. But by 1750, virtually every American loved and admired Whitfield and saw him as their champion. Benjamin Franklin commented on Whitfield. He said this. He said, it was wonderful to see the change made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being, thought, from being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. The revival swept so much that they were singing hymns, not in, not in the churches, but in the homes. And as you walked down the street, you would hear it. Quakers and different demonstrations of power came out of this where people were shaking under the presence of God and other people slain in the spirit and things. They had no idea what it was at the time. George Whitfield would, would preach and openly criticize the churches. Now, to, nowadays, that's not a big deal at all. You openly criticize everything on Facebook, whether you should or not. But George Whitfield would openly criticize churches, and you did not do that at the time. And he called pastors dead men, dead men, and he said they were leading lifeless congregations. These revivalists, not just him, but many that followed in his footsteps, referred to the Christians as un, or pastors as unconverted ministers who behaved like Pharisees, foxes, and wolves, using some of the same language that Jesus used. During this awakening, what really started to happen was ordinary people were empowered. Instead of being subjected to the Church of England, as was the common custom, now they had their own personal connection to God. And suddenly these people were empowered to think for themselves, act like themselves, and throw off the hindrances of establishments that would go on their shoulders. So this revolutionary war really started inside the hearts of the people as the revival shattered social structures and church hierarchy. Before this, you did not speak against the church. You would not have the audacity to talk against one of the pastors from the Church of England. But yet, this revival paved the way for people to begin to be rebellious. Let that sink in about revival. <laughs> they believed that God was working in, Amer in America in a unique and special way because this awakening primarily happened in America. And they believed that what God was doing here in the United States of America, or in the colonies at the time, get, stay with me, but in this region, what God was doing here was special and unique. And, and hear this. And so therefore, God had a special place for us, different than the rest of the world. We were special. That's a theme that still goes through our church theology and American history to this day that started in that great awakening. And if you could call out the sin of the church and the pastors and rebel against the clergy, then why couldn't you rebel against the king? Why couldn't you throw off his tyranny? One historian wrote, What resulted from the Great Awakening was nothing short of the first widespread popular yell of rebellion against the established authorities in the history of British American colonies. John Adams would later write, The revolution was effected before the war ever commenced. The revolution was in the minds and hearts of the people, a change in their religious sentiments of their duties and obligations. Again, the plain language of the people that, that uh, Whitfield taught how to preach in became the standard for people speaking publicly after that. And people like Patrick Henry and James Madison literally studied the sermons of the Great Awakening and used the sermons in their political uh, jargon as they moved people forward. In certain parts of England, the revolution was called the Presbyterian Rebellion. That's how strong 
this came from. It taught the people to speak in normal language. And when Thomas Paine would write his famous pamphlet, Common Sense, that, that really became a, a groundswell of the revolution, he literally took Whitfields and other revivalist preachers' ideas of how to speak to people and translated into political uh, speak and used what was really in many ways a, a kind of sermon extremely uh, working together of mingling of both biblical teaching and politics, which was not normally the case at the time. So I just want to say that America was seeded in revival. Before there was a revolution, there was an awakening that led to the revolution. Would there have been an awakening without, or a revolution without the awakening? Probably at some point. But I promise you this, we would not be the America we are today in that revolution had it not been for the awakening. Maybe there would have been one. It wouldn't have happened as early and as soon. Maybe there would have been one because could, could England have held the colonies? Maybe not. But it would have been coming. And this idea began to flow in their minds. Psalm 33, 12 through 22. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord, Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all of its great strength, it cannot survive. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait and hope for the Lord for our help. And our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. In you. And that kind of mantra became the idea of the foundation, the soil, so to speak, for where the revolution that we celebrate today came from. So I submit to you that we need revival again in America. We'll return to this later on. But for America to be beautiful, we need revival because dead things are not beautiful. Amen. And it's a dead thing that needs a revival. Yep. Number two, America was saturated in prayer. <coughs> it was saturated in prayer. Stanza two of America the Beautiful says, Oh, beautiful for pilgrims' feet, whose stern and passion stress, a thoroughfare for freedom beat across the wilderness. But listen to how it changes. The ending, America, America, God, mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. It ends with a prayer. I want you to know that our founding fathers prayed and dedicated this country to God from the very get-go. The first act of the Continental Congress when they came together after signing the Declaration of Independence was prayer. The very first act. The very first act of George Washington on April 30th, 1789, when he becomes our very first president and is inaugurated at Federal Hall. Prayer was planned even before that for the inauguration. It was put into the papers. They said he's going to be inaugurated at 9 a.m. and we want people everywhere, everywhere coming together to pray for our nation during the inauguration. Not watch it on CNN and Fox News, but to pray for the nation as these things are going on. And George Washington is inaugurated and the Bible was opened in front of him, not closed. Opened to a latter part of Genesis at random. He placed his left hand on the Bible, on the open Bible, raised his right hand. Then he took his oath of office prescribed by the Constitution. He then bent over and kissed the Bible reverently, closed his eyes and said these words. So help me God. He was the first one to ever say it. It was added by himself. It was not prescribed or planned. 
and yet to this day we still say it. He then spoke his inaugural address, which acknowledged his devotion to God in prayer, and then called on America to pray. The very first act of President walking off that stage is he called a prayer meeting that lasted for two hours there in New York, where he was inaugurated at. A two-hour prayer meeting. That was the first thing he did. Our country was birthed and washed in prayer. Our documents were prayed through. About five weeks into the Continental Congress of 1787, when they were attempting to draft the U.S. Constitution, their efforts were a horrible failure. They were not being successful at all. There was backbiting and fussing, and everybody had their own opinion on what should happen. And it was in the middle of that that they, that they were going to be taking a break to go back home for a short season and then come back together to work on the, the documents. And Benjamin Franklin stands up in front of them, and he calls them to prayer. And I want you to see this. I know this is a different kind of message. If you feel like you're in a college classroom getting a history lecture, some of you will love it, others of you will hate it. But you need to see this. This is what he said before that Continental Congress as they're trying to figure out their documents. He said this. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, doesn't sound too much unlike today, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding. In the beginning of this contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent times of superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And, longer I, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an empire cannot rise without his aid. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. This is our founding fathers. This is the way they taught. This is the way they thought. Notice how he acknowledges that they frequently play, prayed during the revolution. Franklin believed that the prayers of the convention had been answered because after they came back together, after five weeks of failure, in a matter of only ten weeks, <coughs> in a matter of only ten weeks, they produced the very documents that became the longest ongoing constitution in the history of the world that you can still go to Washington, D.C. today and see. And without giving it the same credit as divine revelation like the Bible, he was very clear in other quotes, and I'll post some of those on social today, other posts uh, that he said uh, essentially that God divinely gave them the constitution. What am I saying? Our early years were saturated in prayer. By 1815, the U.S. government had issued over 1,400 calls to prayer. That's not long after we were founded, if you do the math. So why has America been blessed? Psalm 33, 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It's not rocket science. 
Why is America beautiful? It's not just the countrysides. It's not just the amber waves of grains and the mountains and the beaches and the deserts. America is beautiful because our founding fathers knew how to pray and invite God's presence into this land. Yep. Amen. Mm. We hear a lot about separation of church and state nowadays, and oftentimes people don't know it. I don't want to give a, a lengthy background on it, but I just want to say that you will not see that anywhere in our founding documents, not whatsoever. Uh, oddly enough, you know where you will find it is in the Communist Manifesto, but that's a whole other conversation. It was coined by a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association, and what he was saying is that the church in America, or I'm sorry, the American government would never become a part of the church the way that the, the, the government in England had gotten in bed with the Church of England, and they had to force and support their allegiance to the church by being part of it. He was saying, no, well, America's never going to be that way. had nothing to do with keeping, keeping God out of government. Again, just think about it. If you believe that, just think about it for a, for a second. Our first president, George Washington, took his, uh, took his oath of office and put his hand on a what? Bible. His first official act as president, he kissed the Bible. Then he held a two-hour praise and worship session, a prayer session inside of Congress. How did they open sessions of Congress? Through prayer. Why did they lead in, or I'm sorry, who did lead in those prayers? It was chaplains. How were those chaplains played by taxpayer dollars? If you believe that, it's really hard to look at history that way. For instance, in 1776, 11 of the 13 colonies required that one had to be a Christian in order to be eligible for political office. In 1777, the Continental Congress voted to spend $300,000, a fortune at the time, to purchase Bibles for distribution in the nation. That's important to recognize that at that time period, they were going broke in a war and had no money. But they believed if they put God first, this is not a tithing message, this is not an offering message, but they believed if they put God first, he would take care of them. So when they had no money to pay soldiers and no money for war, they said, we're going to have money to distribute Bibles and God will take care of the rest. 94% of the writings of our founding fathers contain quotes from the Bible. Every state constitution mentions Bible. The Ten Commandments were inscribed in marble on the Supreme Court. There's a beautiful stained glass window at the Capitol building of George Washington kneeling in prayer. And you see this throughout our history, this constant flow. When you put God first, when you make prayer a priority, all of a sudden God blesses it. But when you remove prayer from the public square, all of a sudden you remove yourself from the blessing of God. You can't see this any more obviously than since prayer was taken out of schools in 1963 and you look at what has happened since. Teen pregnancies have skyrocketed over 500% since that time. Went up 187% just in the first 14 years. 553% uh, with younger teen girls. SAT scores that had been going up for years all of a sudden started going down for the next 18 years in a row. In 1960, or, or since 1963, violent crime in America has gone up 544%. Illegal drugs have become an enormous and uncontrollable problem. And on and on and on we could go. And I know I'm preaching to the choir so there's no reason to go any further. But I'm only saying that when we take prayer out of the public school, out of the public center, all of a sudden we're walking away from the very blessings of God. God blessed America. God did bless America. I'm not sure if he's still blessing America because God blesses a nation whose God is the Lord. Thomas Jefferson would say, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. I know this is years later, but Theodore Roosevelt, our 26th president, wrote, In this actual world, a churchless community, a community where men have abandoned and scoffed at or ignored their religious needs, is a community on the rapid downgrade. 
And obviously many years later, but President Ronald Reagan said, if we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be one nation gone under. We were born in prayer, saturated in prayer from day one on July 4th, July 2nd when they started writing it, July 4th when they started signing it, and the days after where everybody came together and finished signing it. We were saturated in prayer in those early days. We had to be. We were fighting a force we could not defeat. We needed God's presence. How silly is it now that we become like teenagers who walk away from the very presence of God. We walk away from the very blessings of God in prayer because now we think we know better than they know. It's time to bring prayer back and bring the blessing of God back. And as popular as it might be to stand up and preach about how we need to bring it back to the White House and the Constitution and the Senate and, 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 and to the, the, the political buildings of our nation, that's a popular thing to preach, but it will not go back there until it comes back in our house. Like Benjamin Franklin mentioned in The Great Awakening, until people are singing hymns in their own house, we're not going to expect to see hymns sung in the White House. So I submit to you that we lose our beauty when we despise prayer. America, the beautiful. But we're walking away from that very beauty because it's more than the beauty of the land. I've never been to North Korea, but I've been to South Korea, and the land was beautiful. And I'm assuming North Korea probably looks very similar. It's not the land that makes it beautiful. It's the very nature of the freedom and the foundation that we have. Number three, America was cultivated in Christian values. So what are you in the world are you talking about? We've already kind of caught on to this a little bit. Make me, let me be very clear. Our nation was never Christian in the idea that you had to be a Christian to be part of America or something like that. It was never Christian in that regard. But what it was was it had a common morality, had common Christian values that everybody shared whether they were Christian or not. John Adams would say the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. John Adams would believe that the 4th of July should be a religious holiday because it was the day that God delivered us from Great Britain. <laughs> Patrick Henry said it cannot be emphasized too strongly that or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not by religion, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And I know this was years later, but I think it's an important thing to note. In 1892, a Supreme Court case, in that case, the Supreme Court said this, our laws and our institution, institutions must necessarily be based upon the embody the teaching of the redeemer of mankind it is impossible that it should be otherwise in this sense and to to the extent that our civilization and our institutions are emphatically christian <clears throat> our government was only meet, made to succeed now, now stay with me, I know this is deep and heavy, but our government was only made to succeed within a shared worldview where people all agreed not that we agreed on everything, but the worldview, the basic foundations, it was made to succeed in the middle of that. In fact, again, John Adams, our first vice president and second president of the United States, wrote in 1798, he said, Our Constitution was made for, only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to govern for the governance of any other. So, so what do you mean? It's these shared assumptions. For instance, in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, many of you memorized that in school years ago. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident to who? Because we live in America right now where there's a lot of things that are self-evident to you that are not self-evident to everyone else. Why? Self-evident meaning, well, duh, of course, we all know this, we all agree to this. Self-evident, meaning there's male and female and there's not a lot of others. Self-evident, meaning, yeah, we all just kind of knew this. 
And as soon as we get away from self-evident thing, these, these responsibilities, these, these assumptions that came in with Christianity, this worldview, as soon as we get away from that, we begin to devour one another. See, we were a nation born in shared responsibility. <laughs> Individual expression was governed by concern for other people, not just yourself. Remember, we came out of a revolution. You were fighting back to back with your neighbors, with your cousins, with your friends. You were fighting together. You had to care about one another, not just yourself. It wasn't what's best for me. It was what was best for us. But as soon as we walk away with, from what's best for us and turn into what's best for me, we begin crumbling because then we become about our rights and not about our responsibilities we all want rights nobody wants responsibilities we love the bill of rights how come we don't have a bill of responsibilities because the bill of responsibilities was written inside of the heart of man at the time and it was an assumption that they just knew they had just walked through a revolution they knew we had to take care of each other they knew we had to fight together they knew it was about us not just me but the problem comes that we're facing right now is that if you give someone rights without responsibilities, things tend to go horribly wrong. Don't believe me? Give your children lots of privilege and rights without giving them responsibility and see how it goes. Give them the car keys without any responsibility, see how it goes. Give them your bank account without any responsibility. Give them a cell phone without any responsibilities, see where it leads. It leads to a mess. This is what Paul was talking about in Galatians, not specifically to America, but the same context. He's writing to the church of Galatia, and he says this. He said, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Sounds a lot like American patriots, doesn't it? You were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. This is the Christian ethic that was assumed and was obvious to them. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to this, verse 15. Take this to heart. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say walk by the Spirit, do not gratify the desires of the flesh. So many people worry about outside countries attacking America. You don't have to attack us from the outside when we bite and devour each other from the inside. Because we care more about ourselves than we do the community. It's a mess. Liberty by its nature, freedom by its nature, will devour itself if it's not partnered with what the founders would see as a Christian ethic, a Christian worldview that's going to put others ahead of themselves. Because our rights will always end up in conflict if it's about me. I have a right for what I want, you have a right for what you want. But Christian value says it's not about you. It's about us. When you take that away and you become selfish, we begin to devour ourselves. And this is much of what we're seeing in the American culture right now. I submit to you that we lose our beauty when we lose our Christian values. We are turning the page into a secular humanistic worldview where we're seeing everything different. Things that used to be called sin are now called amazing and beautiful. And things that are, used to be amazing and beautiful are now considered sin. We're losing and walking away from our Christian values and it's going to crumble upon itself if we're not careful. We're going somewhere if you're getting depressed. Number four in the last of the four. America was birthed through the blood of patriots. Stanza three in America the Beautiful says, Oh beautiful for heroes proved in liberating strife who more than self, sounds like Galatians, their country loved and mercy more 
than life. America, America, God, may God thy gold refine till all success be nobleness and every gain divine. Have you ever considered the blood of the patriots? Have you ever considered what it meant for those 56 men, a number of whom were ministers, businessmen, teachers, professors, sailors, captains, farmers, those 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence? Have you ever considered what it meant for them? In the last paragraph of the Declaration of Independence is this sentence that should pierce us to our hearts. It says, this document they're going to sign says, <coughs> and for the support of this document, document, I'm sorry, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They knew that the penalty for treason was death by hanging, yet they signed. They knew that they could not defeat Great Britain alone, yet they signed. They knew that all hell was about to start coming at them, that even in their own ranks there would be people wanting to turn them in. They knew that all of their fortune, their lives, their family might all be lost. Many of them would die before the revolution was even over, yet they Signed. It's the blood of the patriots that I think we need to continue to respect to this very day. About signing the Declaration of Independence, Dr. Benjamin Rush, again, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he was a, a founder, a father of American medicine, and a signer, signer of the Declaration. In 1871, he wrote to John Adams. He's talking about the day they signed the Declaration of Independence. Notice this. What, what was it like to be there? This is what he says. Do you recollect the pensive and awful silence which pervaded the house when we were called up one after another to the table of the President of Congress to subscribe to what was believed to be, or, or what was believed by many at that time to be our death warrants? The silence and gloom of the morning was interrupted, I well recollect, only for a moment by Colonel Harrison of Virginia, he was a big guy, who said to Mr. Gary, who was a small guy at the table, I have a great advantage over you, Mr. Gary. When we are all hung for what we are now doing, from the size and weight of my body, I shall die in a few minutes. But from the light weight of your body, you shall dance in the air an hour or two before you are dead. This speech procured a transient smile, but it was soon succeeded by the solemnity which, with which the whole business was conducted. Can you feel that moment? where these people are signing their own death warrants because they believed in something greater than themselves. John Hancock would famously come up and write his name twice as large as anybody else, and he said, now his majesty can read my name without his spectacles. <laughs> Stephen Hopkins was the oldest of the men who signed, and his hand was shaking when he signed because of his age. And he's shaking, and he looked up as his hand was shaking, and he said, gentlemen, my hand trembles, but my heart does not. These men would give everything. Men like Robert Morris, who became the financier of the American Revolution. <laughs> we don't really see it this way now, but when they started the revolution, nobody wanted to loan America money. Nobody believed in this cause. They thought this thing was ridiculous. It was not till three years into the war after the Battle of Saratoga that all of a sudden uh, France and Holland and other countries began to loan America money because they thought, oh, they might actually win this thing. So where did they get their money? Where did it all come from? 
It's unbelievable to think, in fact, one historian wrote it this way. He said, if it were not demonstrable by official records, posterity would hardly be made to believe that the campaign of 1781, which resulted in the capture of Cornwallis and virtually closed the Revolutionary War, was sustained wholly on the credit of an individual merchant. One man essentially funded much of the American Revolution, Robert Morris. All the money he had, he gave up. He took out loans in his own name as much as he could possibly get and gave it towards the Revolutionary War. The sad truth is when the revolution was over, America could not pay him because there was no money. <laughs> we were just found starting out. Yet he never complained. He never went back on his word and he never had the fortune that he once had. John Hart of Trenton, New Jersey risked his life to return home to find his dying wife to see how she was and Hessian soldiers rode after him and he escaped into the woods. While his wife lay on her deathbed, he was not able to be there with her. And soldiers would chase after him and cave to cave he would sleep in. In fact, he's said to have never slept in more than one location one night at a time. He was 65 years old, if that helps you out any with sleeping in a cave. <coughs> when the war was finally over and he was finally able to be there, his wife had already been buried. His 13 children had been taken away. He would never see them again or never know what happened to them. He died a broken man in 1779 without ever finding his family. He lost everything that was important to him, but he kept his word. John Hancock, who was going to write his name so large, was a very wealthy individual, lived in a mansion that reflected his wealth. It was one of the largest and most beautiful homes in all of Massachusetts that he was very proud of. And it was right there in the middle of Boston, in the middle of one of the battles in the siege of Boston. They made the war plan and they said, we're going to destroy all of Boston with our cannons. And John Hancock, in the middle of it, didn't save his own house. In the middle of making the plan, he said, destroy all of it. The beautiful mansion that he had worked so hard to create destroyed it for this cause he believed in. Francis Lewis, a New York delegate, saw his home plundered and his, and his estate completely taken away from him. Mrs. Lewis, his wife, was captured and treated with incredible brutality that you can only imagine. Though she was later exchanged for two British prisoners through the efforts of Congress, she died from the abuse that happened to her. Sometimes we forget this wasn't just the men who signed. It was their families. Judge Richard Stockton, one of the signers, another man from New Jersey, rushed back to his estate in an effort to evacuate his wife and children. The family found refuge with friends, but a sympathizer betrayed them. Judge Stockton was pulled from his bed in the middle of the night, brutally beaten by the arresting soldiers, thrown into a common jail, and was intentionally and deliberately starved. Congress finally arranged for his parole and to get him out of this, but he returned home to find his house was completely looted and everything he had was gone. He did not live to see the triumph of the revolution. He died before it was over. And this formerly wealthy man, his family was forced to live off charity the rest of their lives. Thomas Nelson, a signer of the Declaration from Virginia, was the first in command of the Virginia military forces when Lord Cornwallis began his sack of Yorktown and all that began to happen there. His staff at Cornwallis moved into Thomas Nelson's home. And so his big, beautiful home, which I believe was the governor's house at the time, but the big, beautiful home that Cornwallis was in was owned by Thomas Nelson. And so when 
colonial forces started firing, they purposely did not shoot that house because it belonged to Thomas Nelson. Thomas Nelson asked them what they were doing, and they said, we're protecting your own house. And he said these words, why do you spare my own home? Sir, out of respect for you, they cried back. And he said, give me the cannon. And he fired on his magnificent home himself, smashing it to bits. But his sacrifice wasn't quite over. He had raised $2 million for the revolutionary cause by pledging his own estate. When the loans came due, a newer, a newer peacetime Congress refused to honor them. Nelson's property was forfeited. He was never reimbursed. He died impoverished a few years later at the age of 50. This is the blood of those who sacrificed so we could be here today. And we got to be very careful with that blood. I know it's not the blood of Jesus or whatever you want to call it, but it is the blood of patriots who bled so that we could do the things that we do and have the freedoms that we have today. Of the 56 who signed the Declaration of Independence, nine died of wounds or hardship during the war. Five were captured and imprisoned, in each case brutally, brutally treated. Several lost wives, sons, or entire families. Two wives were brutally treated. All were at one time or another the victims of manhunts and driven from their homes. Twelve signers had their home completely burned. Seventeen lost everything they owned. Yet not one defected and went back on his pledge. Their honor and the nation they sacrificed so much to create is still intact. I submit to you that America loses some of its beauty when we spit on the blood of our patriots by dishonoring them. I believe in freedom, I believe in liberty, but I also believe in honoring those who have gone before us. And were they perfect? By no means were they perfect. Do we glamorize them in America? Absolutely. But they gave their lives, their fortunes, everything they had so that you and I can enjoy the freedoms that we have today. The blood of the patriots purchased America. And the blood of Jesus Christ is what purchased you. How often do we ignore this blood? And we talk about freedom in the United States, but freedom, that's not really what it is. Because freedom on the outside is not freedom on the inside. You can be having all the freedom in the world in America, but be completely bound in yourself. It happens all the time. You got all the freedom in the world with all the luxuries, yet we struggle with depression. We struggle with anxiety. We have all the money we can do anything with, and we have air-conditioned cars and things that they could only dream about in many other countries. And we have all these blessings, yet we are bound by these very blessings and tied to a job we hate to be able to pay for them. See, there's freedom that comes on the outside. American patriots fought and died and bled for that. But there's also freedom that comes from the inside. And that, my friends, comes from Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me before we transition the service? <clears throat> There's some of you in this room, and maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I know this is a weird political, not political, but, but, but patriotic type message today. History lessons in many ways. But maybe today is a day that you need to give your life to Christ. If we're going to celebrate the blood of patriots, we need to be celebrating the blood of Jesus. So before we go any further in this service, if that's you, say, Pastor, I need to give my life to Christ. If that's you, would you just stick your hand up and wave it at me so I can pray with you around the room? Amen. Amen. Come on, everybody together, would you pray with me? Say, Jesus, 
I admit I'm a sinner. And I need you. So from this day forward, I surrender my life completely to you. Make me new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I love, I love that people can give their life to Christ even in the middle of a message like this. I love it. I love it. I love it. If you just gave your life to Christ, do me a favor and text, uh, what is that number? Eight, eight, uh, 21777. We'd love to send you a 21-day devotional and start a relationship with you. We're not going to have a normal altar call like we normally would, but make sure you tell somebody that invited you or brought you today. Let them know about the decision that, that you made and let them walk with you in that decision. All right. Now, if you came in today, you received a communion cup on your way in. And I know there's some type A in this room somewhere that's going, we haven't even talked about Hebrews. This is a series on Hebrews. We're getting there. We're making all that point just to get to here. Because we celebrate the blood of patriots, we need to celebrate the blood of Jesus a million times more. In the middle of the letter to the Hebrews, is, this author is struggling with how to define and how to teach them about Old Covenant and New Covenant and how we are now moving into this new idea. For years and years and years, they had sacrificed animals for the belief that their sins would be forgiven. And he says a few things that would have been considered crazy at the time if it wasn't for the fact they were so true and being experienced by people. In Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, says the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial and clean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. So you see this blood and this cleaning process. How much more then will the blood of Jesus Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Hebrews 10.4, as he continues writing, would have been astounding at the time. So confrontational, so confusing to many when he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why? Because that covenant is gone. It's done. Now you have a new blood offering and he goes on to say for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this first he says this is the covenant I will make with you after that time says the Lord I will put my law laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds then he says their sin and lawless acts I will remember no more and when these have been forgiven. Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that he's teaching that you don't have to work your way to salvation. You don't have to bring an animal and sacrifice it any longer. It's the very blood of Jesus Christ that once and for all becomes the eternal sacrifice for your sins. Previously, future, and present. He is more than enough as the song would sing. So as we take communion this morning, we want to reflect on that. We want to reflect on that. So I'm going to invite you to go ahead if you haven't already done it. And I know it can be difficult with these things, but try to peel off the top layer where you will find the communion wafer.
I am really struggling with this one. Where's my wife? I'll trade you. You got fingernails. <laughs> Thank you. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and then he passed it around the room and he said, this bread is a new covenant in my body, which is broken for you. When we take communion together, we remember that it was the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for our freedom. It was broken for our restoration with God. You can break the bread in your hands, and as you do and hear that snap, reflect on the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us. Now let's pray together. Father, we take a moment, and we remember that your body was broken for us. You didn't have to do it, you did. You chose to come down from heaven for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You chose to come live a perfect life and sacrifice yourself in our place. What we deserve you took. We remember that. And God I pray that we live out of that. That as you chose to be selfless, let us also choose to be selfless. Let us not be people who devour one another. Let us be people who honor one another. Learn from your example. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take the bread. On that same night when he's betrayed and he's part of what we now call the Lord's Supper, he's passing around the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant, a representation of the new covenant. We just read all about it. We used to sing the songs, power in the blood, washed in the blood. We can never lose track that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that offers us liberty. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that offers us healing. It's the blood that washes our sins away. So, Father, we take a moment and we reflect on the blood. The stripes that were on your back. The wounds in your hands and feet. We reflect on these things. And we choose to make them part of our lives. That we won't just sing about the blood, talk about the blood, have a doctrine or theology about the blood. But we're going to be people that live an empowered life through the blood. That it's that blood of Jesus applied to our lives that make us whole, that makes us able to come before God. It's your sacrifice. And we reflect on that. And we choose to, again, be people of sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. You may take the cup.